success doesn't always feel like success. And when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors, and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. All right. Well, here we are with Bart Dixon. Bart, welcome. Thank you, Jared. It's good to be with you. Good to be here. Hey, before we jump into this, I'm holding a pen. It was a present from our last visit together. Tell me a little bit about this pen. That pen from an olive tree in Israel and I had a great experience with my family this summer, my wife and oldest two sons. We took them to the Holy Land and got a chance to see some of the sites we've studied about so much in our lives. And it was a life-changing trip. It was uh, fascinating from a cultural and faith perspective and had a wonderful time. So the Holy Lands, I mean, it's that for a reason. It's like the headwaters of um, most of the major religions in the world. So tell me what it's like to be kind of at the confluence of so many different world religions. Well, it's eye-opening. The, the context that we gained by seeing everybody there, uh, it wasn't just a Christian sites, although there were a lot of Christians there, but the Muslim sites and the Jewish sites, and to see the faithful observance of their religion today, and to see the preservation and major investment in the retention of the memory and the culture and the religious history that's happened there is fascinating. And then you layer in all the social and geopolitical stuff. It was a real eye-opener for my wife and I and for our oldest two boys. Also, we're able to discern and peel from it our own faith experience and to walk where Jesus walked and to be where we've read about these parables was singular. It was pretty special. That's incredible. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for the gift. You're welcome. And it's always really centering to be working through your day and then kind of reflect upon that trip and the history that occurred during those moments. Good. So I'm glad the pen's still working. I need to ink some more deals. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of just jump into this a little bit. The Industrial Athlete Campaign. So tell me a little bit about the Industrial Athlete Campaign and how you got involved in that. And Sure, sure. So I was almost voluntold to become a volunteer with the American Heart Association. I think it was back in 2016. Somebody I really admire and value asked me to serve on their committee as they chaired an event for the Heart Association locally here. I did it not knowing much and I got involved and I enjoyed the experience and enjoyed the Heart Association. I helped him identify a new chair and that chair asked me to stay on the following year. And then I was asked to chair the event. I told him no the first year I was asked because I didn't have my why, if you will, to raise money for Heart Association. But in my time as president of OEG, or formerly Oregon Electric Group, I got a first row seat to what it's like to be a skilled tradesperson and to watch how hard it is to be healthy because of the social and cultural norms on a job site within the industry. And we lost some of our employees. We had some deaths through heart attacks and uh, cardiac arrest, two of them on job sites. And we also had a survivor uh, of a heart attack on a job site that year. And so as my eyes opened up and as we lost an employee that I was particularly close with and admired a great deal, I realized that it was a stage. It was a platform for me to address a matter that sorely needed to be addressed, but, but our industry didn't really have a solution for. And so the industrial athlete became basically this call to 
construction executives and to organized labor and to the craft worker themselves that said, professional athletes get paid because they do something special with their body. And if you turn wrenches for a living, if you are installing electrical work or you're a carpenter or any other skilled trade, you need your body to do your job. So why not treat ourselves like athletes? But instead, we're notoriously known for, hey, we eat lunch at the mini mart, right? Or we yeah. pull it out of the lunch box or the gut truck shows up at lunch and honks the horn. Is, and, is, that, what, is that what it's called? Yeah, the, gut the, truck? The, the gut truck or the roach coach. There's, yeah. And so... We also look at the garbage can on a job site and it's filled with Monster and Amp and the energy drinks and a lot of sugary beverages. And so ultimately we have a lot of obesity and overweight problems uh, and it leads to not just health problems, but it leads to a bunch of uh, mental and social and relational issues. And so the industrial athlete campaign was to raise money and awareness for how we can help this group of people that I love and care about, have spent my entire career with. Yeah. To be aware of what is my blood pressure and why does it matter? Why should I check it and what can I do about it? And there's a lot of money that pours into healthcare plans, especially with organized labor. Yeah. And yet the health outcomes aren't very good. And so having health insurance doesn't equal good health outcomes. And so we're trying to solve the puzzle and to get the messaging out so people can make different decisions. That's that's good work. That's real good work. Thank you. Well, so let's take this moment. As I look at your resume, it, it oozes with leadership. So I'm kind of curious... How have you kind of come to define leadership and then maybe take us through your career path, that arc of where you started and presently at Cobalt today? Okay. You know, leadership is something that I've always found fascinating, interesting, maybe because we're all drawn to or impressed by good leaders. And it started for me with my wrestling coach and my football coach in high school. They were really good men. They weren't just interested in championships. They were interested in helping people become their best. And you felt that as a team and as an individual, you felt it. And so I was the beneficiary of really good leadership. I also felt like growing up in church, I had really good leaders at home with my mom and dad, but also at the church with the people who were trying to help me with my faith. So that was good. I went off to school and I shortly after served a mission in New Jersey, two-year mission for my church. And I had a chance to be in leadership positions there. I was really fortunate to have an awesome mission president who pulled me under his wing and asked me to help lead 200 other volunteers. Yeah. And as a young man, that was interesting to see people away from home uh, at times struggling. I developed a lot of empathy for people who needed support and help. So I think my view on leadership began to emerge there where you realize that leadership was not about a title, but it was about the ability to help other people reach their potential and enjoy the successes of others. So I think I began to define success a little differently in the trenches in New Jersey, trying to, for four months, I went around and met with different missionaries every day, try to help them overcome their fears or their concerns, or uh, try to learn how to be more effective. And that taught me a lot. Came home and studied construction management at BYU. And then I was off to Seattle working for Hoffman Construction and started at the bottom of the totem pole there. And so uh, I saw the benefits of when things were led well and communication flowed well. And I saw the consequences of when communication or leadership was absent because of the nature of what you see on job sites. Yeah. Ultimately enrolled in law school there in the evening program at Seattle University and did a one year of law school at night and then transferred down to Lewis and Clark and continued to work for Hoffman here in Portland. And just kind of was given more and more opportunity to grow and learn and mature at Hoffman and develop some leadership capacity there as a project manager and then did a corporate software initiative and then I led about 40 employees as a director of building data centers across the country. So that was 
sending people to California, sending people to Eastern Oregon, sending people to Virginia and say, hey, you're going to leave your family for a time and you're going to go do something you've never done before. That required a new level of leadership for me. It required me to look them in the eye after I did a gut check and said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure this is good for your family and make sure this is good for your career. And I'm not sending you to someplace you won't succeed. So I think that really caring about the people and knowing what you're sending them to do. And then I met a lot of red eyes to Virginia and a lot of flights to California yeah. and a lot of long road trips to Boardman and other places where I had to go check on the folks. So that's kind of my professional leadership. And through a point during that time with Hoffman, Jared, I was called to be the bishop of a 500 person congregation. Mm. And so I learned volunteer leadership, which is entirely different than work leadership because at work you have some authority, the fiat of yeah, your paychecks behind this and you got to do what I say. Because I said so. Uh, yeah, because I said so. But in a volunteer organization, it's because people want to be there. Yeah. And so you got to create an environment where, hey, I want to be here. I want to help. I want to contribute. So I learned a lot through mistakes. I was a young bishop. I was 30 years old. And so for five and a half years, I learned how to serve and counsel people and, and do things that I never really saw myself doing. So that was a powerful contributor to my feelings about people and how to mm -hmm. help and support them. But it also was a really benefit to my career because it was this time I'm traveling and starting to lead the mission critical group for Hoffman. But at a certain point, we all reached that point where it's like, look, I got to try something new. I got to see if I can do this for myself. And so I launched from Hoffman and I started Cobalt Development at the beginning of 2014. In auspicious beginnings, we were a thriving office of one. It was me. That's often how they start. <laughs> but I knew that I had some entrepreneurial leanings yeah, and that I wouldn't be satisfied if I didn't go explore and see what I could do. And uh, I left some friends and people that I really admired, like Hoffman, and developed a lot of relationships with. So it was, that was a hard decision. I was fortunate to fall into some good circumstances and connections, and I was able to develop a, an 11-acre campus down in Salem for the state police. And I met some wonderful people and investors and, and who become my business partners and really enjoyed that whole process. And while I was doing that, I was tapped on the shoulder and asked to interview for a position with Oregon Electric. Uh, I was asked to interview for their president position. And before I knew it, I was named and introduced as the president of Oregon Electric Group. So that was a surprise thing that I didn't see coming, but was encouraged and invited repeatedly to go interview for that job. And I did, and I'm glad I did. But for the next four and a half years, I led a group of wonderful craftspeople and project managers and got to see construction from really the ground up, or I should say the electrical room up. We were in the parking garages in the basements and uh, all the way to hanging lights and trimming out receptacles. But I really enjoyed that and expanding the business into Washington and to Seattle and expanding it into the Bay Area of California. And again, asking people to go and do things that they hadn't done before, working markets they hadn't been and building a team out of scratch sometimes. And it just, I think it really requires creating a feeling of a vision of what we're going to do, know that people are going to be supported doing it, and then putting the hard work in to support them and being successful at the new mission. And I've learned over time, I better be ready to spend the calories required to keep the commitments because it usually takes more calories than you think. That's fair. That's fair. And so eventually you transitioned from Oregon Electric Group to Cobalt. Yes. So when I started Cobalt, I was very excited and had some success. I was reluctant to leave the early success of Cobalt for Oregon Electric Group, but it was a singular opportunity to be the president of a publicly traded business unit. I yeah. thought, let's take this chance. And ultimately, after a period of time there, I saw a window where my departure would work well. I developed some other leaders of the company. I knew that they could take over. And I was hungry to resume what I started with Cobalt. And 
also the timing of my family. My son was getting ready to go to college. I have five sons, Mandy and I do. And so, <laughs> so plenty of testosterone at home. Oh, it's wild. A lot of wrestling matches. But Mandy deserves all this credit because while I'm doing all these, you know, leadership things volunteer wise and professionally, she's truly managing the household in a remarkable yeah. way. I talked to enough mentors and friends and guides who said, I will never regret time spent with my family. And as Caden, our oldest, was getting ready to leave for college, uh, you know, senior year, I thought, I'm going to spend the rest of the senior year with them and be there in these formative years with my kids a little bit more. And so being self-employed again has afforded me a chance to do that. You know, one of the inspirations for this podcast was really dissecting success. I once heard a word picture to describe success as a kaleidoscope. The metaphor is that a kaleidoscope you know, has a variety of different chambers and together your eye experiences this beautiful image, but it experiences it holistically. You're not experiencing each chamber in and of itself. And so the word picture is meant to kind of visualize how complicated and textured success is, that it isn't one dimensional, it's happiness and how, what really makes you happy in it. Uh, feeling a sense of achievement, right? Or purpose that you're contributing and significance defined as positively affecting those that you actually care about, right? In this case, it's your family and your, your sons. and But then ultimately legacy, like helping others find success and doing it throughout all the different accounts of your life. And so I applaud you. I think you're doing it well. Thank you. Uh, so I want to back up a little bit and unpack some of the things that you just said. It's your regular, it's your normal, but I don't. it's not what we typically observe in life. I think it's pretty common for, as we get older, the amount of money that we're more managing and the risks that we're, we'll call it responsibilities that you're responsible for with kids. There's an aversion to change because change is perceived to be risky. I once heard that people don't change until the pain of their current circumstance exceeds the pain of change. And that's certainly true in terms of what I've experienced in my life and or watching the lives of others. So no one's just looking to shake things up. And so... Except me. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting there as the president of a, of a company that's thriving with record growth. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, that's a great opportunity to transition. I'll cha- raise up leaders and exit stage left. So help me understand how you approach change. And risk is very subjective. We all kind of underwrite it differently. How do you think about risk and change and uncertainty? Well, I think life is uncertain. Any, anybody who thinks they've got it all figured out and they've insured around every risk, I think they just haven't uh, been paying enough attention. It's pretend. <laughs> it's pretend. And so I think that the more life perspective that we gain, and I'm the ripe old age of 43 in a couple months, I genuinely believe that when you learn from history, you can avoid making some of the mistakes that people made in the past. Maybe it's true for all industries, but I, it was acute in my observation in the construction industry, that people would work a lot and travel a lot and make a lot, but they would also have challenges with their family life yeah. or, or substance abuse or with health or, or physical health. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, graduated from law school and I passed the bar exam and I've associated a lot with lawyers. I've never practiced law at, at a firm, but I received the newsletters from the bar and I know that lawyers struggle with substance abuse and with work-life balance and with family life. Yeah. And so I think that regardless of what industry we're in, if we strive for success, we're often trading our time for that success. And I think to the point, and maybe the purpose of your series here, success has to be clearly defined in order for us to pursue it well. And as I watched and observed others who were farther along in their careers, I realized that there were certain trade-offs I wasn't willing to make, or at least I told myself that. Yeah. I wanted to have one marriage that was strong and good. 
Yeah. And I realized there'd be investment required in time and energy and listening and whatnot. Mandy had the same commitment. So that was a nice way to start marriage and then to try and be true to that. I knew what kind of dad I wanted to be. I had a great father, but I also learned from a lot of dads who had a lot of regrets when I was in my 20s and, and yeah. early as a dad. So I wrote it down and said, oh, this is the kind of dad I'm going to be. And that meant that I was often in conflict with my success professionally and with my, my family life. And so, but I decided early before I got too deep in my career that if something was going to lose, it was going to be my professional ambition. The neat part is when you put first things first, oftentimes you're able to find room for each part of the kaleidoscope. Yeah. But if you put the last things first, or maybe the most fleeting things first, mm-hmm. it's remarkable how the critically important elements of that kaleidoscope view, they get broken. And so I elected to put my faith and my marriage and my kids, and then sadly, next to my own personal physical health and then professional success. Actually, I'll be transparent here. There were times where I put my professional success ahead of my own personal health, meaning I didn't rest enough, didn't eat like I should, and it caused me some problems. So just constant course corrections, but I found that when you put those things first, those people support you in those other elements of your life that you want to be successful yeah, at. So absolutely. I have a friend, friend and mentor, Daniel Harkavy, who started a company down the street from us uh, called Building Champions. And I'll plug his book here. Living Forward was the name of the book that he co-wrote with Michael Hyatt. And he talks about prioritization and talks about, you know, maybe at, at first glance, putting others' needs before your own feels generous. And in reality, you can't give what you don't have. It's that old metaphor of the oxygen mask you know when we get on the plane <laughs> if you're passed out it's tough to put the mask on your child so yeah it's counterintuitive you can't give what you don't have and so it's an important important discipline i'll back up and i'll plug for uh, daniel too when i was at oeg i blocked out a whole day after i'd been there a while i realized this thing will take me over if i let it right the needs of the company are sufficient that i can give it all i've got and, and it wouldn't be enough I spent a whole day down the street here. I rented a hotel room. I had read the book and I went through the whole day worksheet. I had a checkpoint with myself and realized, where am I at? What's really important? And before this thing takes you over, what are you going to not negotiate on? What are the things you're going to keep first? And it was a huge, helpful thing. So thank you, Daniel, for your book and for your workbook. Absolutely. It's good stuff. So a quote that I stumbled into kind of in this pursuit of life planning a couple of years ago, I actually sat down for a two-day facilitated paid a consultant to come in and, and walk me through kind of a life plan, which I felt the phrase initially sounds a little hokey, but in reality, when I mean, we put together business plans and financial plans and why not drop it within an infrastructure of really getting clarity around your values. I mean, when we approach planning, we think of it as the alignment of your wealth and values. And so to the extent you can gain clarity around what those real values are and inform a plan, it's really powerful. But I stumbled into a phrase that I often reflect upon fear can be a motivator. It's certainly present in my life. And I regularly have conversations with my clients about their fears. But the quote goes something like this. Don't fear failure, fear success and things that don't really matter. (laughs) And I guess that kind of aligns with what you were just chatting about success that comes at the expense of other accounts that might be more important. Yeah. Well, one irony in all of this is the more we experience a measure of success in life, and especially in professional life, the more demands are made upon us. People develop confidence once you in you, yeah. once you've experienced a measure of success or demonstrated some kind of capacity. And so the, the people who line up to get on your calendar or take a bit of your time or a bit of your thoughts, 
gets longer, which is a wonderful compliment. Some people can become a little bit intoxicated by it. Absolutely. Good for the ego, right? Yeah, it's great. For, I don't think any of us are immune from that. And especially when we're trying to, to establish our careers, and our names, and our reputations, we're pretty loath to pass up on any opportunity where we can promote ourselves or demonstrate our capacity. We really feel that need. Absolutely. So walk me through then the filter that you run opportunities through, right? Because Daniel in his book talks about say no to the good mm-hmm. so you can say yes to the great. Yeah. And so if time and money is a finite resource, how do you filter through what gets this resource of time and money? Well, I'd love to tell you that I got it all figured out. When's your book coming out? <laughs> One of my favorite books, and I've told you this before, I really like the book Essentialism Yeah. Uh, by Greg McEwen. Exceptional book. Yeah. I think the active he, pursuit of less but better. Yes. And, you know, marketers are a powerful group. They're constantly telling us what will make us happy or successful. And uh, I think that... We are inclined, especially as children, to believe it. And they, so the marketers go to kids first to tell us what will make us happy. But I've learned that there's no hair product that's going to make me have hair again. Right? There's a, there's a, and I won't be more successful or happy when I have the hair, right? No, but you're more aerodynamic. I can move faster without having to worry about gelling my hair every morning. But I think that figuring out what it is that makes you happy. Now, I'm bought into a faith. I'm a member of the, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And yeah. that's my faith. And I really appreciate the structure and the plan of happiness, we call it. And that really sets the framework or guide for me. And it is loyalty to God. And I believe he loves and cares about me and every other human being and wants us to be happy. And he gives us some guides. Sometimes they get called commandments. But it's amazing how when you align yourself with those teachings, how well your relationships go. And when you feel love for people, it's amazing how you're able to kind of receive other people's positive energy or love. And some people have a hard time trusting other people. And I've learned that one of the greatest things we can do is trust ourselves and to trust other people. And we're taught to be somewhat skeptical about others because they're angling for our money or angling for our time or our business whatnot. But you, you can be discerning, of course, but trusting people is a tremendous gift that allows you to allows you have real genuine interactions and realize where you want to spend your time with whom. So to, to go back to your original question of how do you filter it? I have set anchor points in my daily life or in my week or month. And I know that there's certain things I'm going to be doing. And any other invitation is going to have to fit around those, what I call these anchor points, the things that I just do with regularity that are habituated. And those, sometimes the habits or the anchor points have to be updated or refined. But I found that if I stick to them, and they include sleep, they include exercise, they include time to meditate or study, and time with my wife, yeah. time with my kids. And if I honor those anchor points, I'm healthier mentally, socially, and then I'm able to think more discerningly about what to give the balance of the time to. Now, I also have goals, right? I set goals about how I want to live and whatnot. That also helps shape it. So I'm not in a perpetual state of reacting, mm-hmm. but I'm acting towards what I want to do. In fact, I was approached recently about leading a new firm in town. Somebody wanted to expand from a different market into the Portland market. And they said, you would be great, Bart. You would be phenomenal. Be our guy. Help us lead, recruit, do this thing. And it was a very flattering offer. Yeah. But in no way is consistent with what I know I want to do and be right now. And so it was, uh, it's hard, hard to say no to a, to an invitation. It's flattering like that, but it helps to know how you want to live and what you want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. The clarity around really what is defined as a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Challenging, probably because it's evolving. 
It does. I think as I mature and my body responds differently to workout, right? And <laughs> Are you still grappling? <laughs> no, but I still, in my mind, I want to go help the wrestling coach with the team, you know, after school, yeah, I just, yeah. it doesn't fit well with coaching my own sons. So maybe when my own sons are gone, I'm going to invest in them and, and their personal development. But maybe when they're gone, if I still have it in me, I'll go out and do that. But I think that as I change, my desires change a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's okay. We do evolve and I think we mature and hopefully are we're refining our goals and, and absolutely all the time. Climbing the mountain of life and as you kind of gain elevation, your perspectives and your visibility changes. So yeah. the lab we spend a lot of time mission is to invest in the success of others. We don't get to define what success looks like. The client defines what the success is and hopefully it's connected to a, a source of significance, right? What right. The, what's the client looking to do? But maybe the ris uh residue of success is wealth, right? It's great innovation and great execution. Often wealth is a byproduct of that. And so talk to us about kind of how that your understanding of wealth and its purpose and role in life, how's that evolved with time? That is a wonderful question. How has my view of wealth changed over time? Well, you know, I think back to my early childhood, I grew up in a middle income family. My dad was, he operated heavy equipment for a while. And then he went into the office and was in construction with a family construction business. And so we always had what we needed, yeah. but not a ton extra. I was a paper boy growing up. And so I loved, you know, I used to have to go collect money from my clients, knock so, on the door and say. That's how Buffett started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, lot, I think a lot of people, that paper route was a valuable learning lesson in business and, and discipline for a lot of people. What are our kids going to do now? I don't know, but I'm disappointed. There was no newspapers to deliver. <laughs> my parents. The, the Dixon clan is just <laughs> passing out papers, reams oh, of paper just for the. My brother, ethic. my cousins, we all had paper routes. You know, we were always anxious to get, when that kid graduated from high school, he wanted his paper route. So we were always looking to pick up. <laughs> another route improve your turf improve the turf expand the operation the enterprise but my grandfather he worked hard and worked really long and he had amassed some real estate but he lived frugally the same house he drove the same car he cheated in every two years and he never really i would say enjoyed the wealth or showed that he had wealth he, he didn't change much and so i was impressed but kind of perturbed like grandpa you got all this money why don't you do something with it but he he was quietly generous very quietly generous mandy's parents have been very successful by the world standards and done a good job. But what impressed me so much about them is the first Christmas I married into the family, uh, I showed up and like, wow, there are more presents around this tree than the tree that I grew up with. But after it was all said and done and the wrapping paper is down, he says, well, I want you to know that whatever we spent on presents, we also decided to contribute the same amount of charity. Hmm. And I was taken back yeah. by how simply and modestly he said it, but he wanted to teach his children that uh, it is not about amassing or accumulating. It is about being a good steward. And so I think my father-in-law, uh, Dick Silman, has been a great example to me of how to handle prosperity. And I've watched him do good. Most of the time he doesn't want to be caught. So he'd probably be upset with me for even naming him yeah. here. But I've been able to watch him. I also watched people have a lot of success and, and show it. And sometimes they're okay with it, but sometimes their kids aren't okay with it. They don't do so well with it. So over time, I've realized that this saying of there, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. And that if we accumulate too much uh, luxuries, they start to reset our paradigm in ways that we may not appreciate in the next generation. And so I tried real hard to have my kids 
feel the need to work or that we're one bad decision away from the soup line ourselves. And so to never feel like what we have is ours, but it's kind of lent to us. If you yeah, will. that's an interesting insight. So it sounds like you've been around conversations of money and candidly, it's one of those topics that culturally is a little bit taboo. You know, I remember a conversation with my father at one point and kids at school were talking about how much money their parents made. And I realized I didn't know. So I came home and just candidly, bluntly asked my dad, I'm like, dad, how much money do you make? Are we rich? And he shut the conversation down super quickly. And so, you know, growing up, I didn't really necessarily have a great insight to like how expensive life was. What's a realistic starting wage and how money works and how do you connect? Money buys you three things, right? So you got stuff, experiences and impact. And how do you discover the impact that you want to be a part of? And how is that expressed within your checkbook? So I guess when it comes to talking about money with your kids, Mm. how have you approached that topic of communicating the values that have informed and helped build the value of your balance sheet? Boy, you got some good questions. I want to be thoughtful about the answer. One thing that I will credit my wife with is she's very, very good at throwing things away. And so we have some running jokes in our family about what she's thrown away, but we don't, <laughs> we don't accumulate extra stuff in our house. Yeah. And because she's so good at purging and throwing things out, you realize how transitory accumulating stuff is. So in our family, we've kind of, because she likes order and organization, we've realized accumulating a lot of stuff doesn't really help you because you're going to get rid of it so fast. And once you stop using it, mom's going to throw it away. So <laughs> I think we like the newest pair of sneakers or shoes and the kids like that, but I think we've held back from buying the newest gadget all the time. I don't run out to buy the newest phone or the kids don't get a video game console. So we kind of never really valued stuff terribly much. Experiences, we cherish. Yeah. And I think we've probably invested more in experiences than many families do, especially when we have to pay for seven plane tickets to go somewhere, five kids and two parents. Yeah. Experiences are pretty costly for us. Yeah, but they don't break. No. And you don't throw them away. They last forever. And you know what? It's kind of like an investment to get better with time. They do. You forget about the layovers and the... The memories get better with time. In fact, when we went to Israel, we talked about that at the beginning of the show here. And our 18-year-old son, he woke up in the middle of the night. He was, he was puking. And we just leaving the flight the next morning. And, and he told us he just can't make the trip. Mom and dad, I can't do it. You're not going to make it. And we looked at each other and we didn't even have to say it. But we knew he's going to make this trip because that feeling will pass. And by the time we landed in Tel Aviv, it, he was healthy again. But it was a miserable 18 hours for him on some flights and laying on the floor at JFK. But that experience now is richer because we sacrificed a little bit of something for it. Yeah, So absolutely. And then in terms of impact, you know, I think we're just starting to kind of realize that the finance can have such an impact. You know, my work with the Heart Association and through our church and humanitarian giving and through our alumni giving, it feels good to know that you're investing in people and in causes that change lives. One thing I really am grateful for, we talk to our kids about tithing. We pay tithing. Yeah. And it helps them to, I think it inoculates you against selfishness a little bit, where you realize you're going to take part of what you have every time and you're going to give it to a cause greater than yourself. And I feel like that's been a tremendous benefit to me is that you realize that what I have is on loan, so better use it well because he gives and he can take it away. Yeah. So let's talk about the future. So sometimes you and I, when we're talking, we talk about what the future might have in store and I don't want to be like a spoiler here, but maybe there's an opportunity to speak. <laughs> so I'll just throw it out kind of as a hypothetical. If, if I were to hire Bart Dixon in five or 10 years to, for the keynote, mm-hmm. what's the keynote on? What do you talk about? What's kind of a topic that ignites your passion and a story that you'd want to get around to tell? Yeah. 
We've hit on it already. I, I'm so grateful for the benefits of thoughtful, prepared leadership. And because I've been a leader early or young in life, I've made some mistakes that leaders in development make. I mean, leaders who are under development. We don't call that mistakes. We just call it tuition. Yeah. And that sounds yeah. like, because you've redeemed it, right? Yeah, well, I like to think so. But leadership is lonely, too. Absolutely. And I think that leaders don't have the type of resources or there's an expectation that leaders have all the answers and to show a need to counsel with other people when not can be a sign of weakness or uncertainty. But I'd love to help prepare leaders, whether that's a manager or it's an executive or nonprofit leaders, helping them develop an environment which their people can thrive and achieve the mission is thrilling to me. And I believe that my experiences and the experience I've studied of others can do that. But there's plenty of room for people to learn how to be their best leader because there is no one style of leadership that will lead to success. You have to harness what you've been given natively yeah. and build upon it. So maybe we can talk about that for just a second. I mean, at Delap, we're working with people that own and operate businesses and invest in real estate. And so what starts as something small begins to have some success and scales quickly. And so common challenge is the things you know, the things you don't know, and the things you didn't know you didn't know. Like yeah. that third category is pretty scary as all of a sudden it becomes known. So how do you curate content and solutions and resources? How do you procure those solutions quick enough to scale with your business? Well, it's so funny. If you ask any collector, whether it's art or vehicles or whatever else they may have, you will find that there is a fascinating story behind each piece that, yeah. they, that they brought into their collection. And I think that's true with leadership principles. There is not a science, if you will, behind it. And the way that you safeguard it, I'm a big journaler, so I write a lot. I write for myself. And eventually so that- how do you store that? Is it analog? Is it it's keyboard. digital? It's keyboard. Yeah, I keyboard it. I keep it in the cloud. And oftentimes there's images or, or yeah. a drawing that goes along with it. But the more I learn, I put it into reservoir. I'm actively teaching and consulting today. Yeah. A part of my practice at Cobalt is to consult with others and whether it's real estate or just business related, helping companies transition from one generation to the next, yeah. helping companies go from one level of performance to the next. And I have found that in the process of coaching and teaching and mentoring other leaders that uh, my memory is jogged and that the journal entries from before, the lessons learned come back to me and the books that I read before, that all of a sudden that material has new context and it's fun to bring it forward and in a timely manner presented to people. And I think that's one thing that I struggle with when things are canned. I'm not a real systems guy all the time. I value systems, but sometimes people need something and it needs to be brought out today, not in chapter six. They need to start with that. And so uh, I like to customize, if you will, when, when I'm sharing and teaching and training. Yeah. Sometimes in a services business, you're asked to kind of describe the product, but if it's not a product, if it's really client centric, you're really meeting people where they're at today. And it's more of architecting something versus peddling a pre-existing solution. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, you talked earlier about developing a, a plan life plan. Yeah. Well, in construction, I never started a construction project where we didn't know what we were ultimately building at the end. Uh, we didn't always know what the color of the wall was going to be or what the light fixture looked like, but we would start digging the foundations knowing what the structure was, the superstructure was going to be. And we'd be developing the design as we went, but you always knew before you started what you're going to build and when you wanted to be done and what it was going to cost. And in life, or in leadership, so often people know they want to start a business. Yeah. But 
it's hard for them to articulate how they'd like that business experience to end up, whether it be in legacy, whether it be in earnings, whether it be in, in employees and what happens. I find so often owner operators, people who are good at creating widgets or good at the service or they're good at the construction services, they often realize I've never sold a business or transitioned a business or prepared a business to go from a family business to a, to a corporation. And so I'm grateful for the experience that I've had that permitted me to help people work through those pieces. Absolutely. My brain thinks in images sometimes. As I've seen my business partners serve these families that we've had the opportunity to partner with for a long time, the picture or image that comes to mind is like a seasoned river guide. I got into fly fishing a couple of years ago and I'm going down the river and the guide, he's got the bottom of the Deschutes River memorized yeah. and it's not his first trip down. So I had to pay some money to him, but it kept me from swimming you know, <laughs> yeah. down the river, it kept me from capsizing the boat. And so there's a difference between price and cost. Oh. And, you know, and so for us, it's been just a privilege to walk life out and business decisions out. And for most clients, they only get to sell their business once. But for our team, you know, it could be 10 or 15 transactions every six months. So we've kind of been down the river. I know the river bottom over here, you know, these are some, each deal is its own, but yeah. there's insights that you know, from those experiences that might be one-offs for that particular client that there's tribal knowledge that you can bring value to those situations and really cross-pollinate the, the learning and insight that, that you've gained as an organization. I love the analogy because so often we see people don't want to make mistakes, especially if you're in, in a role of responsibility and we take great comfort in a manual or in a spreadsheet Yeah, right? because it's tactile. You can touch it. There's hard numbers. It's empirical. Yeah. And it provides us a I'll stop short of saying an excuse, but provides us a reasoning for a decision. And so often people want to do no harm. I've talked to people who say, the first rule is do no harm. Don't make a mistake. But the reality is, is if you're going to achieve something great, you have to be willing to, to venture out a little bit and do something bold. And sometimes it does mean mistakes, but it also means remarkable results. And to think that we can do something for the first time flawlessly or, or with excellence <laughs> doesn't translate into playing music or dance, or sports, or anything else. And so why do we think that if we're doing something for the first time, scaling a business, growing a business, selling a business, that we're going to do it flawlessly the first time without an incredible coaching staff, or trainers, people who have been there, seen it, understand it, know how to do it. There's immense value in being surrounded by experienced people. And, and so you apply it with, with your clients, and they do the same way, whether it's developing real estate for their business that's growing, or whether it's helping with management and operations experience, I have taken a great amount of comfort from great coaches and great guides and great mentors. And I just would encourage your listeners to, to lean heavily on that throughout their lives, not just for wealth management, but for all things they want to do. If they want to learn how to dance, or they want to learn how to play an instrument, they want to learn a new language, turn to those who've, who've done it before. It makes a big difference. Awesome. Bart, I really want to say thank you for our conversation today. Your thoughts on success, but not just near-term success, but success that really lasts. Your insights, your experiences, thank you for generously sharing them with me and listeners today. We'll definitely have to do it again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Bart. Thanks.